So how do you teach your kids to clean up after themselves? Yeah. <laughs> For those of y'all that couldn't hear the balcony, I'll go on. <clears throat> Tidying up with Marie Kondo. I think that's officially how you say her name. I looked it up on the internet, and if it's on the internet, what well, we know is true. Uh, Marie Kondo uh, has a show called Tidying Up with Marie Kondo. She is a guru in the world of home organization, teaching you how to tidy up and get things organized. That's a great idea, right? I mean, tidying up the house, keeping the house organized. Uh, maybe even that's something that you put on your list of New Year's resolutions, that you're going to keep the house a lot more tidy and straight, and, and you're going to become a guru in your own home of tidiness. But what happens if you have kids, Right? And what happens if you have kids, you know, walking and leaping and running and wrestling and, and texting and Instagramming and gaming and all these things all over the house? How do, you, how do you keep your house tidy when you have kids? Well, Maria has some advice. She says, the most important thing is for parents to learn to tidy their own things first. If parents can keep their own belongings tidy, they, their kids will notice and learn by example, and they'll realize how tidying is comforting and enjoyable. Yeah, I knew they'd get a little laughter. <laughs> Tidying is comfortable and enjoyable. Okay, all right, bless her heart. She goes on. Parents should avoid asking their kids to get rid of belongings. Instead, they can ask their kids, does this spark joy in you? Now, I really think this is great advice, but can you imagine this moment, you know, when there's Legos all over the room? Hey, does, does this spark joy in you? You know, they may not know what we're talking about, right? It's a great question, though. And, and if, if you're going to ask the kids that question, then I guess, again, her principle is you have to ask that question to yourself first. So let's just kind of have a little walk in, in your mind for a moment here. And, and let's go to the room or the place at your house that has the most clutter. All right, let's go there right now. In your mind, you know, you go to that spot, you know, that has the most clutter, right? Maybe it's the garage. Maybe it's the guest room. Maybe it's the downstairs closet. Maybe it's that junk drawer in the kitchen, or maybe it's the storage shed out in the backyard. All right, so let's just, let's just walk into those places. Let's start with the storage shed. I mean, that rusted hammer in the storage shed, you know, the one you found in the parking lot at the Shrimper restaurant 20 years ago, you know, the one you've never used. I mean, does that hammer really spark joy in your life today? What about the junk drawer? Yes, I love that. Tool guy right there. What about the junk drawer, you know, in the kitchen? You know, those... 19 green ink pens, you know, the ones you've been shoving in your pocket at the PTO back to school meetings the last few years. I mean, do, do those really still spark joy in your life or are they just filling up the junk drawer? Yeah. What about the downstairs closet? What about that Golden Girls TV show themed Monopoly game? You know, the one that's, that's missing two pieces, that's missing about 12 property cards. Does, does that still spark joy in your life? What about the Muppet Baby pillowcases in the guest room? You know, the ones your mom bought you in 1984 that you keep on those pillows. I mean, do those really still spark joy in you? Or what about the garage, the, the pet rock still in the original unopened package? I mean, does that pet rock still spark joy in your life, even though it's shoved in the corner of the garage? Now, we, we have a lot of clutter in our houses. Even if you're a tidy person, there, there's one place that's got a little bit of clutter. And, you know, it's a good thing to tidy up every now and then. Maybe the most responsible thing in your life right now is to organize and tidy up things in the house. But is there a time where doing the most responsible thing actually is dangerous? 
Is there a time where we're doing your own thing first, tidying things up your way might actually steal joy instead of sparking joy? There is. There is a time, there is a decision, there is an attitude that will actually steal your joy. So what is that? And how can we avoid it? Well, let's see if we can find out. We're going to let the prophet Isaiah help us this morning. Isaiah 52, verse 10. The Lord has bared his holy arm. Isaiah is writing to a nation of people that their government was about to shut down. Not for five weeks, but for 70 years. And it wasn't just going to be a a government shutdown. They were actually going to lose their homes and they were going to be forced to live as political prisoners in a foreign country. These people were desperately going to be wanting some good news. They were desperately going to want a spark of joy. You know, in ancient times and even in modern times, when a a warrior or soldier goes into battle, they have some kind of armor that they put on. But the Lord God of Israel, he doesn't need any armor he, he bears his arms. He rolls up his sleeve and he, he bears his arm and he shows his providential power. He shows his awesome authority. He shows his majestic might. Four weeks ago, all over the world, people sang these words. He rules the world with truth and grace. All over. People, people sang that all over the place. And I'm sure Isaac Watts wanted that song more than just in December, right? I think, I think it's a song we really need to sing all year long. But if we're really honest with our hearts, we don't always live like we believe that's true. We don't always believe that God is, is ruling with truth and grace. We don't always believe that he's rolling up his sleeve and bearing his arm and showing his power and his strength in the world. Why? Someone might say, how can God be ruling the world with truth and grace when I'm having so much trouble with my teenager? How can God be ruling the world with truth and grace when my spouse is working so hard to ignore their vows? How can God be ruling with truth and grace when my teacher keeps making every test a little harder than the one before? How can God be ruling with truth and grace when my boss seems to make my life impossible? How can God be ruling with truth and grace when the doctor doesn't have any more answers? How can he be ruling with truth and grace when my agent can't get a little more money for the accident? Or my auditor can't find a few more deductions? Or our politicians can't seem to work together more? How can God be ruling the world with truth and grace when there's so much crime and so much poverty and so much terror and so much evil? In his work, The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis wrote this. Not many years ago when I was an atheist, if anyone had asked me, why do you not believe in God? My reply would have been, look at the universe we live in. History is largely a record of crime, war, disease, and terror. The universe is running down. All stories will come to nothing. All life will turn out in the end to have been a transitory and senseless contortion upon the idiotic face of infinite matter. 
If you ask me to believe that this is the work of a benevolent and omnipotent spirit, I reply that all the evidence points in the opposite direction. Either there is no spirit behind the universe, or else a spirit indifferent to good and evil, or else an evil spirit. How Lewis thought before he became a believer is not a rare thing. Looking at the world today, many people would say that the evidence is in the opposite direction, that there could be a God who's ruling with truth and grace. So how do we respond to that? Well, if we demand that God gets rid of all of the sin and the evil and the pain and the suffering in the world, then that means he would have to get rid of me and he'd have to get rid of you. Because, see, we cause pain and suffering. We have sin. No, it may not be the kind of pain and suffering that gets us on the nightly news, but our spouses and our kids and our neighbors and our family and our friends, the people we work with, maybe the slow lady who's working the register at the restaurant, you know, we cause pain, we cause suffering. So if we demand that God gets rid of all of the sin and all of the evil and all the pain and all the suffering, if we demand that God makes the world perfect, then that means he has to get rid of all of us. So kind of hoping for a better answer, right? I mean, is there a, a better way to address and think through the problem of sin and evil in the world instead of wiping everyone out? Yeah, there is. This is what the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Chapter 4, verse 17 of 2 Corinthians. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Do we have days that we're going to lose heart? Yes, we are. Are we going to experience pain and suffering and affliction in this life? Yes, we will. But if we are in Christ, if we're believers, what do we do? Well, we fight against losing heart. We, we see the beauty of the gospel. We keep preaching the gospel to ourselves. We don't wait for Dow to say something the next Sunday. We do it on Monday at 12 o'clock. We do it on Tuesday at 3 o'clock. We keep preaching the gospel to ourselves. This is good news. This is good news. So we fight against losing heart, and we actually embrace pain and suffering. Why? That, that sounds crazy. Why would we embrace pain, and suffering. What did Paul say? Paul said that the reason we embrace pain and suffering is because it is producing for us an eternal glory that outweighs the suffering. So what does that mean? Well, here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that pain and suffering are not hard and awful and painful and stressful. Doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that the, the difficult things in life are small. It's just this picture that there's something bigger. There's something beyond us. So what is this thing that's beyond us? Well, the only way we can find it is we have to, we have to do a little bit of work. And the work, Paul says, is, is kind of simple. We, we take pain and suffering and we compare it to something else. So we, we get some scales, and we put the pain and the suffering in one side, and then we put something else in the other side. And the something else in the other side is not momentary. 
See, Paul's trying to help us see, look, the way that we move through this is that we see the pain and suffering is momentary. We embrace it because it's momentary. Even if it lasts our whole life, it's still momentary because on the other side of the scale is something that's not momentary, something that's eternal, something that has value, something that satisfies our soul. So what's on the other side of the scale? What's going to take it from momentary to to something that is not momentary? Well, the way we balance out pain and suffering in our life is through the other side of the scale. And the other side of the scale, according to what Paul's telling us, is heaven. Ah, really? Really? Your your answer to the problem of evil in the world is, is some fantasy land that we can't see? It's true. We can't see it. But that does not mean that heaven is a fantasy. We live in a culture that says that heaven is a fantasy. See, I'm oversimplifying this, but that's because I'm simple. And, and I can respond as a believer with confidence to the reality of heaven with just one sentence from Jesus. John 14, verse 2. I go to prepare a place for you. I do not believe Jesus was a lunatic or a liar. I believe that Jesus was and is the Lord, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And because of that, my belief and my faith and my confidence in Jesus allows me to see that that heaven is a reality, and the reality of heaven helps my heart and my mind seem in the middle of my pain and suffering that those things are momentary, but the grace and the love and the mercy and the power and the authority and the beauty of the joy of the gospel is mine in Jesus forever. See, God designed eternity to help us see that the hope of eternity far outweighs the moments of stress and the moments of pain and the moments of anxiety. Now, notice I used the word design there because guess what? We aren't always going to get this right, you know? Look, let's just be real. There's going to be some moments we're going to be sitting in the closet on the floor and we're going to be so stressed out or we're going to be so overcome with grief that we just, we just can't move. But God has designed the gospel to come into that moment when we are on the floor of the closet and help us see that our pain and our suffering compared to the eternal weight of the glory of God, it's momentary and then this is eternal. It's pulling us out. It's pulling us away. That's why the gospel is such great news. If you're not a Christian, if you do not believe in God, what is your hope for the problem of evil in the world? Where do you put your hope? Do you put your hope in in people? In people that do good things? Because even the best of people, they, they have sin, they have failure in their lives. In one of her personal letters, Mother Teresa was describing her moments of of sinful unbelief. And she said this, that her smile was a mask or a cloak that covers everything. Billy Graham said this about Jesus Christ once. He said, I believe that he has covered all of my sins. 
so arguably, here's, here's two of the quote-unquote best people who've ever lived on the earth, at least, you know, last hundred years for us. And both of them acknowledge that they're not the best. Both of them acknowledge that, that there is sin in their lives. So the math doesn't work. If we put our hope for the problem of evil in people, it will never work out. There has to be something bigger. There has to be something better. There has to be something purer. There has to be something perfect. Randy Alcorn said this, Indeed, some suffering weighs so heavily. Holocaust, rape, human trafficking, torture, children dying of leukemia and starvation. It's so heavy that what fills the other side of the scales must be weighty beyond all comparison. It's got to be weighty on the other side. And, and so what is that weight? That, that weight is so simple. I, I go to prepare a place for you. This, this place where the glory of God lives forever. This place where the love of Jesus and the person of Jesus is forever. That place is a place where there is no sin and there is no evil. Stephen Curtis Chapman wrote a song called Heaven is the Face, and this is how he described that place. It's a place where your glory fills every empty space. All the cancer is gone, every mouth is fed, and there's no one left in the orphan's bed. Every lonely heart finds their one true love, and there's no more goodbye and no more not enough, and there's no more enemy. No more. No more. That's weighty. But see, the enemy doesn't want us to think like that at all. Look, let me be clear. The enemy is not against your religion. He's not against your denomination. He's not against you doing good deeds and doing good things. He's not against you giving money to charity. He's not against you volunteering. He's not against you doing many things for social justice. He's not against any of those things. He's he's completely for all of that. But what he wants is for us to believe that those things are the ultimate solution to sin and evil in the world. Randy Alcorn goes on, no wonder Satan the liar seeks to deceive us about heaven and the resurrection. If he convinces us that eternity will be boring, spent floating on clouds, then we'll waste this life thinking it is our only chance to experience happiness. Yes, live life to the fullest in Christ. Do everything to the glory of God. Eat, pray, love, give, go, grow, live, learn, laugh. Do it all. But please don't let your soul believe the lie that this is the only place that you can find happiness because that is a lie. And it's the lie the enemy wants us to believe. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. That's that's a place of happiness, not just for a few years, but forever. About 700 years before Jesus lived, the Jewish people 
were going to be political prisoners. They were going to be shut out of their whole land. And they were going to be longing for some good news of freedom and, and joy. They were going to be longing to be released. And they were going to get it. It was going to happen. The Babylonians who, who conquered them, they were going to be conquered. And the Jewish people were going to get to go home. And how did that happen? Well, Isaiah is telling us that it, it happened because God bared his holy arm. God, God did it. And how did God do it? Did, did God make a dove appear in the bowls of soup of every Jewish person on the first day of the Feast of Babylon 5 so that all of those people would, would rise up and they'd grab their weapons and they'd go and conquer their land and take everything back? Nope. That's not how God did it. Now, He did it through a king, a pagan king named Cyrus. A few chapters back, Isaiah describes this. This is, this is some of the best scripture in the Bible, although that's a dumb statement. It's all great. Isaiah chapter 44, beginning with verse 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and the one who formed you from the womb. It's good. God's getting ready to talk. It's great. I The Lord and the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone, causing the omens of boasters to fail, making fools out of diviners, causing wise men to draw back and turning their knowledge into foolishness, confirming the word of his servant and performing the purpose of his messengers. And then he says this. It is I who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. And of the cities of Judah, they shall be built. And I will raise up her ruins again. It is I who say to the depth of the sea, be dried up and I will make your rivers dry. And then he says this. It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he will perform all my desire. That's great. God says, there is this pagan king who does not follow me and does not follow my ways, and I will use him to accomplish my purpose. Let me just bring that in to next year's voting opportunity or this year's voting opportunity whenever we vote on politicians. God used a non-Christian politician to do his will. That's important. Let me ask you a question. How do you listen to the news? How do you watch the news? How do you listen to talk radio? How do you read the paper? How do you scroll through social media? Do you listen and watch and scroll and and read? Do you do those things as a person that understands that there is an eternal glory that far outweighs anything you read, listen, or scroll through? Do you listen to the news as a Christian or a non-Christian? Do you listen to the news as someone who knows that the God of the universe even has control of pagan kings? Do you listen to the news as one that says, you know what, my God says he does it? That's how Paul scrolled through social media. 
He had this unwavering confidence in the middle of pain and suffering and confusion. He said, yeah, this is real. This is all here. Everything you read is true. Well, except for the fake news, right? But it's all there, all that pain, all that suffering, all that sin, all that evil. It's there, but there is this weight. There is this glory. It far outweighs all of it. far outweighs all of it. And how do we know that's true? Listen to what Isaiah says next. The Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations. I love this. God is not in hiding. He was not in hiding. He has never been in hiding. He will never be in hiding. God has clearly revealed himself through visual creation, through verbal declaration. He's clearly revealed himself through scriptural revelation and divine incarnation. He's clearly revealed himself through spiritual communication and ecclesiastical coordination and a lot of other shuns. He's revealed himself. He is not hiding. And there is this one thing that God has specifically made sure that he has never, ever hid from the world. And what is that? Listen to what Isaiah says next, verse 10. He has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. God bared his holy arm and he rescued the Jews. And the whole known world knew about it. They knew what Cyrus had done. They they saw what God had accomplished. A pagan king rescuing the people of God, helping them rebuild their lives. And then 700 years later, God, before the whole world, bared his holy arm in a manger in Bethlehem. And then he bared his holy arm on a cross outside of Jerusalem. And then he bared his holy arm inside of a tomb outside of Jerusalem. And then he bared his holy arm on the road to Damascus. And he bared his holy arm in Algeria. And he bared his holy arm in England and then Germany and then France and then Maryland and then North Carolina and then Garden City Chapel in South Carolina. And God is bearing his holy arm in this room right now. And God is bearing his holy arm to anyone who can hear my voice. And God is bearing his holy arm to the uttermost parts of the earth right now. And nothing can stop that. This is our God. This is no fantasy. The whole world has seen and the whole world will see. So what does all that mean? Well, it means that the greatest way that God has ever displayed his holy arm, the greatest way he's ever displayed his grace, his mercy, his power, his love, his salvation is through the person of Jesus the Christ. The reason that we can sing with great joy that he rules the earth with truth and grace is because God sent Jesus to deal with the problem of sin and evil once and for all. Isaac Watts wrote about that in the previous verse. It goes like this. No more let sins and sorrows grow nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow. Far as the curse is found. 
How far is the curse found? Well, it's found in the heart of every atheist. It's found in the heart of every agnostic. It's found in the heart of every terrorist. It's found in the heart of every Baptist. You see, there's, there's no one who's outside of needing help for the curse. Anyone and everyone needs to have the salvation of our God. Anyone and everyone needs to have the salvation of our God to come and conquer and cancel the curse of sin. Anyone, everyone, all the time. Why? Here's the thing. Going back to the beginning, you can't tidy up the curse. You can't. You can't tidy up your life and and take the curse to the thrift store. It's not how it works. The only way the curse can be dealt with is in and through Jesus Christ. There is no other way to deal with the curse. Why? Because he is the only one who truly rules the world with truth and grace. Jay Ants is an author and elder at his church outside Spartanburg, South Carolina. He says this about he rules the world with truth and grace. So there it is, a concise powerful way to understand your world. Just linger on that a second. This reality that Jesus rules the world with truth and grace, that is a concise way for you to understand your world. He goes on, you know the words, Christ is the longed for king. He now rules all things and that is good. Yes, there is sorrow and sin, but your king conquers the curse as far as it is found. And finally, because of his love for his father, Christ's sacrifice means that a righteous judgment results in joy for his people. Joy. I love sitting in the back listening to the choir, joy to the world, joy to the world. Like, oh, I'm getting ready to say that too. Joy to the world. A, a spark of joy, not, not a temporary spark, not a momentary spark, not joy that lasts for 70, 80, maybe 90 years, but joy that is everlasting, joy that is eternal, joy that cannot be taken away. You see, Jesus Christ really does rule the earth with truth and grace. And he really is still saving people like me and like you. As far as the curse is found, he is still saving as far as the curse is found. As far as the curse is found, Jesus still saves.